Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. News. On tonight's show, South African equities expert Pete Fulion to share his investment insti- insights. Paul O'Sullivan, ace corruption buster on a fresh scandal that has erupted around South African politician Tina Jumat Peterson, this time over the inner workings of the South African police service computer systems. Coming up in the second half of the show, we get into the festive spirit with South Africa's wine queen Carrie Adams and business motoring journalist Jared Neves shares the details of an attractive easy-to-drive SUV that can cope with South Africa's potholes. First, my business colleague Melanie Nathan has the day's headlines. Greensill Capital, a startup that provided short-term cash advances and spun off its loans into bond-like securities, has filed for insolvency protection. This after Credit Suisse withdrew its $10 billion credit line. Backers like Japan's SoftBank stand to lose billions. Now, South Africa's Barrick Fund, which has a similar business model to Greensill, is crumbling too. Bloomberg reports that Barrick wants to go into liquidation, as over half of the fund's $4 billion in assets are now stuck in coal mining, consumer goods and fertilizer production across Africa. Barrick responded to Bloomberg inquiries saying it continues to operate, as before, serving borrowers across Africa. Pony Ma's Tencent has been put on notice by China's antitrust watchdog, says Bloomberg. Asia's largest conglomerate was fined as Beijing expands a crackdown that began with Jack Ma's fintech empire. China's top financial regulators see Tencent as the next target for increased scrutiny after the clampdown on Jack Ma's ant. On the local boss, Naspe's shares have fallen almost 6%. Meanwhile, Ant Group CEO Simon Hugh resigned as the company overhauled its business, an anonymous person told Bloomberg. Eric Jing, Ant's current chairman, will become CEO as well, effective immediately, and Ant's spokesperson has confirmed Hugh's resignation. Hammerson, which owns shopping centres across the UK, France and Ireland, slashed the value of its properties by almost £2 billion last year, according to a statement. Plummeting rental income caused the company's worst loss in history. Bolt Technology, a rival to Uber Technologies in Africa and Eastern Europe, was valued at more than $2 billion in its most recent funding round, according to founder and CEO Marcus Willig. The company raised $20 million in funding from the World Bank this month. Bolt's total fundraising is almost $600 million. In Africa, Bolt plans to use its platform to add other services such as grocery and food delivery. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts follows the stock markets closely for Biz News throughout the day. Justin, what's been happening today? The JSC All Share Index was down to 68,100. Naspers and Process were the biggest losers on the day, with Naspers falling over 200 rand and Process down over 100 rand to 3,400 and 1,700 rand a share, respectively. Nasdaq-bound Cartrack increased 4 rand to 66 rand a share. Harmony Gold decreased 3 rand to 64 rand a share on the back of weaker gold spot prices and a stronger rand. Sabanya Stillwater decreased 3 rand to 68 rand a share on the back of weaker precious metals prices. In the currency markets, the rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 95 cents against the dollar, 
20 rand and 77 cents against the pound and 17 rand and 84 cents against the euro. Gold is down to $1,700 an ounce. Bitcoin is slightly in the red. One Bitcoin will put you back 835,000 rand. And lastly, Brent crude is strongly up at a shade below $70 a barrel. Charles Boerter analyzes stocksforbiznews.com. Charles has the CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst, designation. Charles, tell us, what is your number crunching telling us about Aspen? Jackie, uh, my number crunching is telling me that Aspen is a little bit overvalued at present at 151 rand a share. That is the share price or market price of Aspen today. My intrinsic value for the company is uh, about 134 rand. So the market price is about 12.8% uh, more than the intrinsic value calculation. Just, uh, and just for our listeners who aren't familiar with intrinsic value, can you just tell us what this metric is and why it's so important when you're deciding whether to buy or sell a share? So intrinsic value is an estimate that many professional investors use and it's based on accounting knowledge, economics, statistics. It's essentially part art, part science, but it's uh, the fundamentals of the business underlying the share. And the share price, the market price that you'll find on the stock exchange is very often a very good indication of this intrinsic value, but not always. And that's where the opportunity lies for somebody to make money. Charles, before we close off here, Aspen's share price was trading much higher a few years back, and you would have thought that it would have benefited from the COVID-19 pandemic because it produces dexamethasone, which is a drug to help fight COVID-19. Why hasn't a drug like this pushed up its share price? Well, you have to remember that while people were indoors, a lot of them didn't get the usual flus and things that they would have. And Aspen makes those drugs as well. And there were some supply chain issues in the manufacturing and things like that, delays, which increases costs. Um, but we should see as their partnership with J&J, Johnson & Johnson, uh, reaches production that should feed into their profits going forward. That was Charles Boerter, who covers Stocks for Business, giving us some tips on whether Aspen is a good or a bad share to buy right now. Coming up, this is the Biz News Power Hour, broadcasting on Fine Music Radio FM and DSTV Channel 838. You can also follow the show on Biz News Power Hour's Spotify channel. Some of the highlights now from our interviews on the Biz News Power Hour this week. I think, you know, if people don't understand about the South Industrial Revolution Fund and, you know, when you look at the fund fact sheet, you will notice that it's the fact that the fund has over 380 holdings in it. And there isn't, you know, I think the largest holding in the fund is 2.8% of the fund. And the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund invests in many digital themes. So it is absolutely everything that underpins Fourth Industrial Revolution. It is, you know, virtual reality and drones, autonomous vehicles, electrical vehicles, genetics and genomics, gene therapies. So, um, you know, there are so many different themes that underpin 
the fourth industrial revolution fund that we actually refer to it as a bit of a market index of disruptive innovation fund, if you like. Whereas, you know, if, if you look at some of the funds that are quoted as potentially imploding, such as the ARC asset management funds, which are often quoted because they have delivered similar returns to the fourth industrial revolution fund, the holdings in the ARC fund, are, for instance, there's a 10% holding in Tesla, which obviously has seen a massive revaluation last year. In the fourth industrial revolution fund, I think Tesla stands at one and a half percent of the fund. We have, you know, in the top 10 holdings, we don't have Microsoft, we don't have Google, we don't have Apple, we don't have Amazon. So in fact, it's a very, very broadly diversified fund. But having said that, the fund delivered, you know, 88% return in dollar terms last year. Do you support an easing of exchange control so that South Africans can broaden their exposure to offshore assets through their domestic pension funds? We would, um, but I think one must bear in mind there is one important factor. Investing in a pension fund provides you with very significant tax savings, uh, tax benefits. So it is not, I think, too much to ask or to expect from your regulators to then say, if I'm going to grant you the tax benefit, I do want some level of prudence, and then I will impose certain requirements and rules. Now, one can argue whether the Regulation 28 as it stands is excessive. I I certainly would would welcome some relaxations there. But I don't think it is unreasonable to to expect that your regulators would say we do need to protect potentially some less qualified investors, and we do that through prudent guidelines. Charles, brokerage fees around the world are going close to zero. How is Easy looking to generate revenue going forward? Yeah, look, that's an, it's not all around the world. So it's really only in America that that force is prevalent. And the market setup is very different there. So you can sell flow uh, in that market, and there are lots of market makers and funds, institutions, hedge funds that will buy that flow from you. It really is the only market in the world where that's a viable business model. So the zero um, approach hasn't worked anywhere else. And that's just because the market setup is different everywhere else. So we don't see the trend towards zero on, on brokerage. But what we do see is that you've got to provide more and more functionality and service across a platform. And at each level, you've got to charge a fair rate. And in the aggregate, you get a good return for your platform investment. And things are going to continue to get cheaper. That's a, you know, that's a very positive force, but they're not going to tend to zero. Uh, and the zero business models are under threat. You know, they've got to, you've seen it play out in Robinhood. You know, the fact that it's zero means that they're selling your flow to someone else and discerning investors may choose rather to pay a broker and not have their flow sold in the future. So I, th- I think the debate is out on zero and it certainly is only a trend that's happened that's worked uh, in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about that hostile taker? How did it start? How did you decide Adapt IT was your target? Yeah, I think I think it's important to take one step back and and probably look at the word hostile, and uh, and and how it's defined in this particular context. So while it while it certainly might meet the definition, because the definition says that any bid um, that circumvents a board and goes directly to shareholders meets the definition of hostile, doesn't mean to say that at a very practical level it is hostile. So I can tell you that. In um, in 2020, 
a huge group had conversations with representatives of ADAPT IT and those conversations were very constructive conversations and were certainly not hostile um, by any stretch of the imagination. We received an unsolicited offer um, so we're treating it as such uh, and therefore uh, it triggers processes uh, that you know are not in, in our control so we have an independent board that, that's looking at the offer and it will only pronounce itself once uh, they've organized themselves to, to really make an offer because we, we haven't received a circular from them. So, so they've asked for extension. We're still waiting. It's a very warm welcome now to Pete Fulion, fund manager of the CounterPoint Value Fund, a fund which invests exclusively in South African equities, has a time horizon of seven years, and has outperformed the JCLC. Pete, I see Sabanya and Anglo Gold Ashanti are in the top 10 holdings of your fund, according to your most recent fund fact sheet. Earlier this week, we heard from Sabanya Stillwater CEO Neil Froneman, who put out a public invitation to Anglo Gold and Goldfields to merge in what he said would be in the national interest. Would such a merger be in the interests of your investors? Um, uh, hi, Jackie. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. It depends on uh, the terms of the merger, um, if it's a takeout or a merger. So, you know, I think, uh, I think Neil is a smart, smart guy and he's flying a kite to see what will happen. Um, I think shareholders should just sit back and wait to see what happens. Do you think a merger is likely or is this just a bit of shaking the bush around? Look, I mean, every time gold company share prices go up, um, eventually get M&A activity. We haven't seen much of it yet in the cycle, but I think this is an indication that it's starting to come. I think previously um, we had the old Harmony uh, Goldfield saga, but when was that? That was about 10, 10 12 years ago when I think uh, uh, Bernard was trying to create a national champion as well. Uh, and I think Neil is now trying to fly a cut to see if it will work this time. Um, so, again, uh, it, it, it's hard to say whether it will create value for Zabanya shareholders or for Anglo Gold or Goldfield shareholders. Well, I think one has to just sit back and see what happens. Pete, we spoke to Omri Thomas, a director at ABEX Holdings, earlier in the week, and like you, he has BAT in his portfolio. Can you tell us why you like this tobacco company? Uh, very simply, um, I think the cash flows that the business will generate over the next five to ten years is bigger than the current market cap. So I think one isn't paying a lot for those cash flows. Um, they're right here in front of you. They're short duration cash flows, so they're not subject to discount rates going up and being um, uh, being devalued because of high discount rates. So I think it's a fairly safe investment. It might not be a massively high returning investment, but I think it's a fairly safe investment. It's quite an interesting investment because the company has been accused of being involved in the illicit tobacco industry in South Africa and elsewhere in Africa, uh, including in Mali, where there are allegations that armed militias and jihadis are also linked to the thriving black market and cigarettes there. Is there a risk that the sway of public opinion from the environmentally conscious and socially conscious investors could be bad for BAT, or does history tell us that tobacco companies may be considered immoral, but they make for good investments? <laughs> no, I think there's a very definite risk uh, of that happening. Um, but I, I also, one has to look at what risk is being discounted by the current share price. I think the current share price is discounting a lot of risks, uh, some of them being the ones you've mentioned. Uh, and there are other risks as well, regulatory risks and others, a declining market. So there's a lot of risks, but in, in my opinion, um, I think those risks are recognized in the share price. So 
you are not you're not taking on unrewarded risk. And I think that's important for investors to realize any investment you make, whether it's in a tobacco company or an IT company or a mining company, you are taking on risks, some that you might know of and some you might not even know of. Um, and I think the investor then needs to judge whether the risks you're taking on, are, are, are you being paid to take on those risks or are you taking on unrewarded risks? And I think in the case of BAT, um, I think you're being paid very handsomely to take on the risks that are present in the company. You've got Discovery in your portfolio, but not Sunlum, which released results this week. How did you decide on Sunlum, uh, on Discovery rather than Sunlum? Well, for me, it's not uh, it's not always either or. Uh, I think both are very good companies. Um, we bought uh, Discovery um, during last year when uh, the market was uh, was saying that its business model was under pressure due to COVID, um, and you know, we just thought that a business like Discovery um, has lots of irons in the fire, and we think they would survive, which they did. Um, so it was just on the basis of that. Uh, we do think that a pure insurance company, financial service company, insurance company like Sunlam, is probably a bit more risky than a, a more diversified business like Discovery. And the thing that finally tipped in our favor is I think if you look at Discovery, it has a lot of optionality. It's got a lot of... Um, Greenfields businesses that have started, the bank, um, Vitality, uh, the UK business, the Chinese business. Uh, so it's a, it has a lot of optionality. And in volatile markets, we think the value of options go up. So when you look at discovery as a basket of options, we think in these volatile type markets that we're living through at the moment, the value of the business actually is higher than otherwise would be the case. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts has a question for you. He covers the stock markets for the Johannes, uh, covers the stock markets for Business News. Pets, I know that MTN is one of the larger holdings in the Counterpoint Value Fund. What did you make of their results this week? And do you think the share price still has legs? I mean, it's climbed um, nearly fifty percent in the last three months. Yeah, I, I, I do think it still has legs. I think it's still only valued on the EV to EBITDA multiple of three times or so. It's long-term average. It's a between five and six, so it could easily double and be in line with long-term average valuation metrics. I, I think the most interesting aspect of the results was that they withheld the dividend to to accelerate debt repayments, and I, I think they also spoke about selling some assets to reduce debt. So every rand that they reduce the debt with increases the value of the equity. And if you get a higher multiple, uh, EV multiple on that, uh, then it you get a ratcheting upwards effect. So you could get more than doubling uh, of the share price in that case. So I thought the fact that the withheld dividend is fantastic. Uh, paying down debt quicker is great. And I think the most interesting aspect of the result is that uh, the executive management team will, going forward, be rewarded on a return on equity basis, where in the past it was in terms of EBITDA growth and, 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 and metrics like that, which don't actually create value. But a return equity metric is one that creates value uh, for shareholders, and, and we support that. And we think that uh, that MTN is well set to deliver good returns, even from the current share price going forward. And and Pitt uh, Naspers process, what happened to the heavyweights on the on the JSE today? Yeah, well, I think there's there's two things that have affected Naspers process uh, over the past while. The one is this: there's a there's a distinct rotation out of growth into value worldwide. Um, and I think uh, NASPAF slash process is subject to that. Uh, so at the margin, there's less buyers of growth stocks and more buyers of value stocks. 
So that puts a bit of pressure on the share price, but that was accelerated today by, um, by the announcement of the Chinese regulators that they placed a fine on the financial fintech businesses of, of Tencent and Alibaba and others in China, which I think just again reinforces the view that the Chinese government is taking a much more stringent view of the financial services business, businesses, um, uh, in, in China. Uh, and I think that could crimp the growth prospects for that part of the business. Um, you know, government regulation isn't always great, and I think the Chinese government doesn't really care too much for shareholders at the end of the day. So, uh, you know, so the market is sort of looking at this and trying to see where it's going to go. I don't know. I, I, I do think that a business like Tencent is a fa- another fantastic business, but it does face a lot of risks. Government regulation is one of them. And those risks, as opposed to BAT, are not priced into the share price. The market is taking a very optimistic and rose-tinted view of the future. Uh, and I think when this sort of thing happens, it just reinforces the view that there are risks there that are not priced into the, in, into the current valuation. Is that why Naspers isn't in your top 10 holdings or perhaps not in your portfolio at all, Pete? It's not in the portfolio at all for exactly that reason. I think it is, it is as risky an investment as something like BAT. Uh, but the market is not passing in any of those risks. So even though it's got a net asset, asset value, it's trading below, it's, uh, it's not trading at a, at a good price, you don't think it's a value share? Or the risks outweigh the rewards? No, I, th- I think the risks outweigh the rewards, yes. Very, very different. I think that's a good way of summarizing it. My colleague Charles Boiter has a question for you, Pete. Peter, where else in the market do you think uh, South African shareholders aren't being rewarded or taking any serious risk, perhaps? Um, yeah, it, it, the South African market generally is, is fairly cheap. So I think there's most assets in, in South Africa are, are, you know, priced to reward shareholders. It's just that shareholders locally don't want to take on um, that side of the bet. They'd rather take the money offshore. And for sensible reasons, I, I think it, it, it makes sense to have someone money offshore, but I think it also makes sense to have some money in South Africa because by and large asset prices here are are low and um, there are a lot of risks. We all understand the risks of investing in South Africa. We see them in the newspaper headlines every day um, or let me rather say on the internet headlines every day, the Twitter headlines. Um, we see them every day. Uh, so we know and understand the risks. They're there and I do think those risks are priced into into South African assets. So by and large, um, I think South African assets are, are cheap, and it's hard to actually point at massively overvalued um, assets on the Janusville Stock Exchange, with the exception of possibly NASPAS. Um, you know, there might be some that are you know slightly more expensive than others, but I don't think it's outrageously valued businesses, as opposed to on uh, in the USA specifically, where I think um, you know, the risks are not being fully discounted for many, many businesses. Pete, I couldn't help noticing, I know you focus largely on the stock market, but last year you wrote an article in which you uh, reflected on how investing in tech, uh, not investing in tech was a big mistake, and that with hindsight you said Amazon and Apple have at times been priced like value stocks. Now, Amazon and Apple are hugely popular stocks among offshore investors, and we have them in our business portfolio What's your view of the pricing of these stocks now? Yes, so currently I think the, the pricing is quite rich. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago where Apple was trading effectively for below its cash on the balance sheet about six or seven years ago. 
Uh, and that was when it was a good investment proposition and has done fantastically well since then. Uh, where it is priced today, um, I think, and, and given the regulatory environment um, and also the rotation out of growth into value that is happening um, and outlook for interest rates and inflation possibly, um, I think it's it's not as cheap and probably, you know, it doesn't offer the same sort of value it did five or six years ago. So so that piece I wrote wasn't last year. It was last month I wrote that piece. Ah, and it okay. Was basically, it was basically saying that, you know, um, value uh, is in different places. And, and it's just not just low PEs that determine value. There's, there's all sorts of other things one has to look at. And one of the things I missed, uh, and I think many other investors missed, was this um, concept of – of, uh, of scale benefits shared with clients uh, and platform companies like Facebook and Amazon and Apple and so on uh, created tremendous value for their shareholders through um, through the benefit scale that they generated and it's a trick I missed um, and I wrote that piece just to remind myself that I think one has to look at value from different angles um, and discovery I think is a very good example of that it's not a low PE stock by any stress of imagination but I think it's a very much an undervalued situation at this point. Pete, before we close off here, for our listeners who are not familiar with the differences between a growth-oriented investor and a value investor, can you just explain your investment philosophy? So in short, what a value investor tries to do is um, buy assets for less than the present value of their future cash flows. So when you look at a business, you try and estimate what sort of cash flows they're going to throw off into the future and you discount them back to present value. And you compare that with the market price of the business. And if the market price is substantially below that, then it is a value situation. Um, whereas I think growth investors try and forecast earnings growth and then, um, and then try and get on the momentum of uh, earnings growth cycle and, um, and ride share price momentum upwards as it responds to that earnings growth. So it's more of a, uh, growth forecasting uh, strategy rather than a cash flow discounting strategy. You've been listening to Pete Fridion, fund manager of the Counterpoint Value Fund. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. Tina Jumat-Petterson, Chair of the Police Committee in Parliament, is back in the spotlight in connection with irregular payments for state projects. Jumat-Petterson is an ally of former President Jacob Zuma, who was at the centre of the corruption allegations under his rule. Jumat Peterson is the former energy minister who pushed hard to implement the controversial one trillion rand nuclear deal with Russia. She also presided over the clandestine sale of oil reserves, you might remember. This week it emerged that she appears to be helping friends claim hundreds of millions of rands in connection with the computer system that stores DNA samples and other important evidence for the South African police service. The Democratic Alliance is calling for a debate of national importance in Parliament because the information system has been offline since June last year. Also among those fighting back against Jumat Peterson is Paul O'Sullivan, founder of Forensics for Justice and the person who has put behind bars, among others, corrupt former chief of police, Jackie Celebi. Paul spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of Biz News, earlier about the fiasco and what his next steps are. seems that Tina Jumat Peterson is back in the spotlight in connection with corruption. You know, I'm not necessarily saying she's corrupt. What I'm saying is she has a track history of abusing public funds. 
She was hauled over the coals by the public protector several times, not once, but twice. And the purpose of that hauling over the coals was purely and simply because she had been treating public funds with contempt. If you look at what the public protector said of her in 2012, the public protector said, Minister Jamat Peterson's defence of ignorance of the costs involved, though accepted, is a cause for serious concern as she displayed a blank check attitude towards public funds. Now, she found her in breach of the Executive Ethics Code, and she said, therefore, the conclusion that her conduct amounted to reckless use of public funds was improper and unethical is accordingly justified. And then, of course, in 2014, she got hauled over the coals over the patrol boat issue with the Navy. And again, she said that the actions of the public protector, this is, said the actions of the minister constitute improper conduct and maladministration. And then she recommended her recommendation, which hasn't been taken into account, by the way, hasn't been dealt with. It's never been dealt with. She said the president to consider taking disciplinary action against the minister for her reckless dealing with state money and services resulting in fruitless and wasteful expenditure, loss of confidence in the fisheries industry in South Africa and decimation of fisheries resources in South Africa and delayed quota allocations due to lack of appropriate research. I can't think of a higher level of incompetence. This is the same woman that wanted to have South Africa get itself in debt up to the eyeballs to embark on a nuclear power program, which was one of Suma's pet projects. That was a one point uh, one trillion rand project, wasn't it? That was threatening well, to I cripple the whole economy. A trillion. The, the, the first phase was estimated at a trillion. Now, obviously, you know, with all the things going on with Greenpeace and global warming and all the rest of it, we do need to move away from fossil fuels. But to swap fossil fuels for nuclear energy when the rest of the world is busy bailing out of nuclear energy. South Africa, on the other hand, because of the capture of ESCOM, it suited ESCOM and the criminals that were running ESCOM to have coal as the main supply for electricity. What Tina wants to do, and if, if anybody cares to listen to that tape recording, and my suggestion would be that you play it, the arrogance that's portrayed in her voice, where she makes it clear that they, to stop fighting with FDA and sign a contract with them and make this thing work, and she's given them till next week. I've said, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. FDA have been proven to be corrupt, and there's no way that Forensics for Justice will allow 540 million rand to be thrown at those criminals. So we're in the process of instructing attorneys that if they proceed with this, we'll only find out next Wednesday, but if they do intend to proceed with it, we shall bring an urgent application in the court to stop it. So just to be clear, do you think this is incompetence or she's helping friends? You have um, said unlawful instructions given by you to SAPS officials, yeah. which creates an enabling environment for fruitful and wasteful expenditure and or corruption. In fact, I've said here, we also reserve the right to open a criminal docket against you for attempting to force the police to commit crimes by issuing unlawful procurement instructions to them, the them being FDA. And then I've said it's clear to us that your reckless unlawfulness is being motivated by arrogance incompetence or criminal conduct. Either way, it will stop and stop now. Every time we say we're going to do something, we do it. And I'm saying we are not going to stand by 
and watch 540 million rand of taxpayer funds being thrown at a bunch of criminals. So just for clarity, this this relates to the system that connects DNA to criminals, and this hasn't been working for the uh, last 18 months. No, it's not just DNA. It's tracking and tracing of criminal evidence. It's what they call the SAP 13 store. So, so all criminal, all evidence of a crime goes into what we call the SAP 13 register. Let's say they find a gun at a crime scene. The gun will be sent away for ballistics, and then it will be bagged in, in a bag with a barcode on it, which links it directly to the criminal case in question. And then a prosecutor... Well, the police at the moment, but eventually it'll be the prosecutor when we have what eventually we will have, which we should have had 15 years ago, by the way, uh, but the money has been blown and we don't have it, which is what they call an integrated justice system, where a prosecutor can look on his computer and see the, the criminal docket, which is what they have now in probably 70 or 75 percent of the countries in the world. I think it'll be another few years and we will have an integrated justice system where a criminal docket is opened. You will give your statement, your statement will be scanned and the investigation diary will be electronic. The police officer that's doing the, you know, the detective, everything will be electronic. He will list all the evidence that was found at the crime scene. It will be tagged, we call it tagged and bagged, scanned, and then it's put into the storeroom. And then when it's put into the storeroom, it will be stored in a particular location at a smaller police station, it's not a big issue, but a larger police station, they have rows of racks and it will have a row number and a rack number and a position number. And that all goes on the computer. And then you don't have this stupid situation that we've been having where the trial is going on and suddenly nobody can find the smoking gun or the knife or whatever it was that was bagged. Excuse me so for being cynical, but isn't this timing exactly coinciding with the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture? And isn't this problem with the technology well, going well, to make all, it much more difficult been, to uh, apprehend all, this people? This has all been relayed at the Zondo Commission into State Capture. You see, what happened was in late 2015 slash early 2016, Forensics for Justice opened a criminal docket against Paklani for corruption. And we're saying that his corruption wasn't just about the kickbacks he got from certain forensic supplies companies to build a luxury mansion at Sable Hills Waterfront Estate, but his corruption also involved a much broader scale. Now, we did not carry out that investigation. It was carried out by IPID. But what we did do was we fed into IPID the data that we received and the information and intelligence that we received. We then assisted IPID, who led the investigation, and they came to the conclusion that Perklani had been paid vast sums of money through a money laundering process. The money went out to Namibia, and then it came back from Namibia, and then it was paid to car dealers, and then cars were bought and cars were sold and converted to cash. You know, the whole process to conceal the flow of funds. The end result was that FDA were getting paid to supply. For example, you go out to the store and you buy yourself a camera, and it has a little battery that goes in it. So they were supplying these cameras. Let's say they supplied a camera across the whole country. Uh, forensics in the whole country might be 3,000 cameras. It's not rocket science. If you've got 3,000 cameras and they're 5,000 rand each, that's 15 million rand. Then they sign a maintenance contract and replace batteries once a year for another five grand a camera. The whole thing was a, we call it evergreen contracts. No tender process. No, a single competitive price was obtained. 
It ultimately led to them buying and importing goods from Australia from a company which they owned and they were buying the goods. Let's say item A was being purchased for a thousand rand in Australia. It was then being sold to their company here for 20,000 rand and then being sold to the police for 30,000 rand. So the police ended up paying 30 times more than the value of the goods that these people were selling. And the whole thing was a total ripoff. And in order to get away with it and not to have any competitive procurement processes, they paid bribes to Paklani. Paklani wasn't the only one. His wife was given bribes as well. But beyond the financial uh, skullduggery here, there's the bigger picture of nobody really being held to account because the whole system is in disarray and some captured friends seem to control the inner, inner belly of the justice system. Well, in fact, if you look at where we were in 2017, 2018, when Paklani was arrested and charged, we've actually gone into reverse. IPID has a new leader. The leader was appointed by a minister of police who we say is not fit for purpose. He's involved in criminal activity and has been involved in criminal activity for a very long time. He shouldn't be the minister of police. He unlawfully got rid of Robert McBride. He unlawfully appointed a woman who was not fit and proper. And she now is complying with his requests. So she has effectively or is in the process of eviscerating the investigative capacity of IPID. IPID no longer has this high-powered investigation team that they had. She's broken it down. So IPID can just investigate what I consider to be not rocket science crimes. Have you heard uh, from Jumat also... Peterson yet? Has she responded to your email? No, but you know, arrogant people don't, do they? She's had plenty of time to respond. She'll see what happens. If she stands up in Parliament next Wednesday and is able to get agreement by Satoli, General Satoli, that they are going to pay the 540 million rand to FDA, we shall, we shall launch an urgent application. No judge in his right mind is going to agree that the police, who've had hundreds of millions of rand stolen from them in the last 10 years, should give another half a billion rand of taxpayers' money to the thieves that stole the money in the first place. It's just not going to happen. We're not going to allow it to happen. That was Paul O'Sullivan talking to me, Jackie Cameron of Biz News, a bit earlier about a new scandal that has erupted around ANC politician Tina Jumat Peterson. Before we move on to talk about wine with wine queen Carrie Adams, let's just take a quick listen to what Tina Jumat Peterson said to politicians at a committee meeting. My ruling in this meeting today is the police cannot investigate the police. If I have to write to the speaker to ask for an investigation into this matter, I shall do so. I shall take legal advice. In the meantime, I will ask the speaker how an independent committee can investigate, starting from General Khan to SAPS, and why it has taken so long to solve this matter. Could it be so be recorded? My second ruling is that all court battles must be stopped. It has taken you months and months. I have seen nine different legal court orders against you, against SAPS. So all your legal battles will stop today. In Cork, now, no. My third ruling 
is that the General Satole says that there is a, an agreement. General Satole, you are confirming that there is an agreement. You will all appear before this committee next week, Wednesday. Next week, Wednesday, I expect a plan of action for the implementation of your agreement. If you cannot meet with CETA, SAP's Treasury, I shall call them to a meeting myself. Treasury, thank you very much for your briefing. I will instruct Treasury, I'll call the Minister, I'll instruct CETA, I'll call and write a letter to the Minister to meet. If you have to meet with FDA, it will be so. I will follow you on a daily basis until next week so that I have a day-to-day -day account of your meetings. National Minister, you have directed that the Deputy Minister deals with this matter. I so instruct that the National Minister and the Deputy Minister be seized with this matter and report to the committee next week on the implementation which has already been finalized. I say this in the interest of each and every rape victim. I say this as a mother who has been affected and impacted upon in a many, many different ways. As the chairperson of police, I have a serious concern that for two years, this portfolio committee has been running around in circles. I can even today, if we are not going to solve this matter, I will write to the speaker to say that I've been misled. That was ANC politician Tina Jemmett-Petterson instructing her colleagues to hand over about 500 million rand to a company called FDA, her friends. A more cheerful subject now. Joining us in the studio is Carrie Adams, Queen of South African Wine, for a conversation with winemaker Catherine Marshall. Carrie, tell us a bit about Catherine Marshall. Jackie, hi, and thanks for having me again on Fabulous Fun Friday on FMR. It's lots and lots of Fs. I hope I get that right every week. <laughs> And this week, I've got a new friend in my studio, Dudu. So, hello, Dudu. Hi. Oh, Dudu's very, very busy driving the bus here, Jack. You don't understand. And then, of course, little Justy. Justy, what should we have been buying this week? MTN uh, carry Ooh. came out with the results and so did Aspen. So, yeah, it's been a good week on the JSC front, but always great to have you here on a Friday evening. I know. Hopefully, ours is the fun part of the evening and then everybody can have fun for the rest of the weekend. When I first came back from living in the UK, I was working for Anglo-American Farms and in the cellar of Fergelegen, under the watchful eye of Martin Minot, who we all love and adore, was a certain Catherine Marshall and we learned to love and adore her as well. And she was being taught how to make wine by Martin. It took her about five minutes and she made better wine than Mart. Kath, hi, welcome to, <laughs> welcome to our naughty corner. <laughs> I have to Google about that. Hi, Carrie. <laughs> Lovely to chat to you again. And you. Thanks so much for making time for us. I know that it's harvest time, and I'm sure that we caught you in the cellar, did we? Yeah, I'm just busy topping and filling barrels at the moment uh, with the new pinner, Carrie. So it's all very exciting. The birth has has begun. Has the birth my, begun? Thirtieth odd vintage. Yeah. Oh my so, God. yeah. And, so it's, and it's what's the a, what's the um. What's the harvest looking like for you? Because all your fruit's coming from Elgin, isn't it? 
Um, I actually started uh, dabbling with other areas as well, Carrie, but predominantly mm. Elgin. Um, it's an area that I've been involved with since 2004. Mm. And uh, it's it's the, probably one of the most beautiful valleys around. And it's one of those valleys that really needs to be explored because uh, one tends to drive from Somerset West along the N2 straight to Hermanus and mm. forget to kind of uh, blink um, uh, through the apple orchards that one drives through <laughs> going on the N2. But if you had to just take a little detour off the, the main vein of the N2, You'll see some incredible scenery, some incredible farms, some beautiful wines, outstanding uh, international quality apples. So Elgin has a lot to offer. I know. You being the best thing that happens in Elgin, actually. (laughs) Kath, in in 1997, you produced a label called Barefoot, and I think lots of people might remember that. For any of you who don't remember Kathy Marshall, you should, everybody should know Kathy Marshall. She has this unbelievable fun sort of space that she operates within and she makes everything look really, really easy. But it's not. When you taste her wines and you know the attention to detail and the beautiful, beautiful delicacy and elegance of these wines, there's not too much fun that's being had while she's making them. I'm sure she's very, very devoted and resolute in her in her search for excellence. But you started off with with Barefoot Wines, and Mm. then you started with your Catherine Marshall label. There's so much to speak about. The label itself, tell us about the artwork on the label. Well, you know, back in the day, the the landscape of winemaking was very different, Carrie, and um, there weren't many paintings around, if I recall. I think I was really taken with uh, Mouton Rothschild, who... uh, on every vintage, they would have a different artist like Picasso, Matisse, Miro, all of these wonderful yes. um, artists. And I was really captivated by that because I like to, to see myself as an artist. Mm. Uh, I actually should have been doing, doing art, I think, because that is really my, one of my, my huge passions. Mm. And so I, I figured that I really would like to have a label that is stand out, especially being a beginner, a new kid on the block very green and all of that. And the only way to get attention is to is to grab it uh, yeah. with, a, with a really cool label. Mm-hmm. And while I'm sitting talking to you, I'm looking at my first painting label, which was a bright blue background with a lady wearing a Pinot Noir colored dress. I remember it and the label so well. Was done, <laughs> yeah, and that was done by a fabulous woman called Hanneke de Klerk. And she is, she's kind of the Frida Kahlo of South Africa, I would call yes. her. She kind of reminds me a bit of her. And her house even reflects that kind of, kind of character. Mm. She's phenomenal. And I was extremely blessed to, to have her collaborate with me. So what we do is we swap paintings for, for wine. So when she has her art exhibitions, the wine with her labels is there. So we've done an incredible, uh, 18 or so. No, I can't even think how long it is, but since 2000. It's more than 18, I'm sure. I've yeah, got more it's about than 18. 20 odd years, 21 years now that we've, we've collaborated and I'm extremely blessed to have them. So well, we need really to, we need out. to ask Jackie Cameron how much we think those, those labels would be worth because I know that I've kept all my Chateau Mouton Rothschild labels that oh, were. Oh, there you go. And I'm sure yeah. they must be worth a lot. And I think that the Catherine Marshall labels are going to be exactly the same. Jackie, do you think it's well, worth keeping? Say. Do you think it's worth keeping bottles with with beautiful painting label painted labels on? That sounds good, but I don't know if I could keep that wine. It sounds delicious. No, we drink the wine and we just keep the bottle. 
<laughs> and what we could do is we could always send it to China where they just put sort of fraught vinegar in there and re and no, recork no, don't it. Dare you say that? Oh no, no. <laughs> Kath, um, we we have a situation now where I think you have got one of the only or one of the few or certainly the first micro winery in the Western Cape. Tell our listeners about what a micro winery is. Um, well, you know, when I'd come back from overseas, uh, I was hell bent on creating my own kind of garage Easter styled wines because when I, when I was on my travels in the States, particularly Oregon and, uh, and Sonoma County, everybody, uh, who was a winemaker also had their little Zinfandel bubbling in the garage or their mm. Pinot. And I was intrigued by this. And then going to France, I saw it there as well. And I figured, well, you know what? I, I really want to do something like that in South Africa. And I doubt that I'm the first person that, that ever did that. I'm sure there are many people that have had in South Africa and in Western Cape that have had their little garage kitchen wines going. But mm. I think where I, I was really lucky was that back in the day, it wasn't, it wasn't quite a popular thing. It hadn't been made popular. No. So, um, I was very fortunate to have things like top billing and carte blanche intrigued by my little operation. And so I managed to get onto all of these platforms. You're being so modest. How- you got onto those platforms because you make hot wine. <laughs> Thank you, <buddy. laughs> but, um, and so that's how it all started, really. Yeah. Mm. And now you've got, mm. at this stage of the game, you've got finite elements, which is your sort of Rolls Royce. Then you've got yes. the Kathy Marshall range, which is um, a Rolls Royce with four cylinders instead of six. And then <laughs> you've got Jono's Wave. And of the many things that you and I have in common, we each have a Jonathan. And yes, when I saw you do. last, we tasted Jono's Wave. Tell everybody, it's such mm. a gorgeous story behind that Jono's Wave wine. <laughs> well, um, I live in a beautiful village called Cork Bay, which was uh, rated by Forbes as the coolest, hippest, Village in the world. It's number one. Wow. Uh, and so, and so that's where we live, John and myself. And there happens to be a reef just outside our front door, really. <laughs> so John will run down to the reef and go and have a little, a little surf because he's a big surfer dude. That's his religion, he tells me. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so that's kind of how I decided that it would, I actually wanted to call it John's reef. But he said, under no circumstances should you do that because I will be shot by the rest of the surface. So yes. I decided to call it Jono's Wave then because it's, it's the way that he likes to, to, to ride. Yes. And also the wine reminds me of a, a sort of a, a, a wave break going over your head. It's kind of that freshness, that pure, clean vibrancy that you get when you drink that, that wine. It's You've got, got kind two of, of them under Jono's Wave label, haven't you? No, I've got, I've got Jono's Wave under the Amatra label and then Amatra, I have the Aureus. Which is under the Amatra label and the Oreads are the caves just behind my kitchen door up Choppy's Corp in the, in the sort of the Musenberg Cork Bay Mountains. Mm. So I kind of, that's the lifestyle brand that's, that is, is, um, kind of uh, produced around Cork Bay. We yeah. need to make those available. I'm going to speak to the big chief sitting bull here at Biz News and see if we can't put a Jono's wave something onto the Biz News corner because it's, it's <laughs> not brilliant. readily available in Johannesburg. I haven't seen it readily available anywhere. And it's just yeah, it's 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 getting traction. It's gaining traction. I have to say, I, I think I put more of my marketing um, if emphasis on the fine art collection, which is my fine art elements: Pinot, the FAC, uh, uh, Chenin, Amphora, 
and then the Peter's vision, which is my cab blend. So, well, let's talk um, about those yeah. finite elements because I think mm. of those Pinots, in fact, the wines in your finite elements range are probably mm. of the top 10 wines in the country. Tell everybody about your finite elements. Uh, that came about after, after, after kind of finding myself when I turned 50. I first of all went to Scotland because that's where my roots are. My, that's my where you go when you turn 50. Roots. You go to die. Yeah. <laughs> in a barrel of whiskey. I to, <laughs> then I went to Burgundy to go and find out why Pinot Noir, why has Pinot Noir always been this like thing? Why do I have this mm. thing about Pinot? So I went and spent uh, two weeks with the best of the best in the world who make the most extraordinary wines. Very blessed to have had that opportunity with the great Remington Norman who took uh-huh. us on that tour. And then I decided I needed to figure out the spiritual uh, side of myself because I, I ain't that spiritual or religious, I guess. I'm spiritual but not religious. So Did I you find to, Jesus in Burgundy? No. Well, no. I actually I ended up going to Tibet to go and check out my <laughs> oh, That's good enough. Okay. Yeah, and we, and we did a big hike up uh, a base camp and kind of found myself, I guess, up there. Yes. And it really impacted the way my finite elements turned out because, because I think, I think if you have that kind of spiritual connection with Pinot, which I think it is, mm. without sounding too woo-hoo about it, but it really is a, a wine that makes you feel. It, it really has a kind of thing that, that, mm. uh, resonates deep within, you know, and, and it's, it's, I don't think any other wine other than Pinot does that for me anyway. I always say it's and so, such a, such yeah. an incredible grape when it's beautiful. It's Absolutely beautiful. It's like that yes. that little girl with that curl, you know, when she's good, she's yes. very, very good. When she's horrible, yeah. she's nasty. And it's very yeah. premenstrual and it throws tantrums on the vine and it throws tantrums in the cellar and it's it's absolutely yeah. impossible to make wine out of Pinot Noir. So anybody who gets it vaguely right is a bit of a hero in my eyes. You are a big, big hero. What does the twenty twenty one vintage look like in our finite elements space? Um, it's kind of all over the place at the moment. It's difficult for me to really say because that's how Pinot is. It only reveals itself a little bit later on in its, mm. in its, uh, processing. And, and, and I just want to add to, to what you say about Pinot. For, for me, that grape, that variety, that gr- the great Pinot Noir is probably one of the most honest grapes. And I think that is when I work with it keeps me extremely honest. And so, and so. <laughs> It's it's um it's it's very difficult to kind of see how to make it, but yes, I think I think if you can keep Pinot you know, honest, it will it will shine. So that's kind of what I, how how I work with it. Really. Kathy, you and I are going to yeah. go before we're too old to do it. We're going to go on a sort of a trip through Burgundy, and we're going to floor oh, all of those. Hey, it really is please my favorite. Do. My death row. My death row meal yes. is a boiled egg and soldiers and a bottle of Latouche. What's <laughs> well, yours? There you go. I would say mine is, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I have to excuse my French, but it would be Comte de oh. and it would be the Amarois, which I think is François Millet's great wine. I think he's an extraordinary yeah. winemaker, and, yeah. uh, and, and I just cried when I tasted that wine. I literally <laughs> shed tears. It was one of the most profound wines I ever had. So I know. I'd, l- I'd go back just for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you are one of our absolute jewels in our crown. We're so lucky to have had you to chat with us oh, on FMR Harry. this evening. I really Thank love you. every minute that I spend with Kathy Marshall because you really are you. modesty personified. I'm, I'm going to try and sort of preach the gospel according to Catherine Marshall Wines for the rest of the month to make sure yeah, that we've got you. you up and running for the year. And thank you so awesome. much 
for joining us on no, FM thank, Market. Thank you. Thank you, for in, thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure to catch up, Kat. Get Thanks back, a lot. Get man. back to that cellar now. <laughs> I, I, I will do. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. That was Carrie Adams speaking to Catherine Marshall about the art of wine. Coming up, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts covers the stock market throughout the day for Biz News. Justin, what's been happening on the JSE today? The JSE All Share Index was down to 68,100. NASPIS and Process were the biggest losers on the day, with NASPIS falling over 200 Rand and Process down over 100 Rand to 3,400 and 1,700 Rand a share, respectively. NASDAQ bound car track increased 4 Rand to 66 Rand a share. Harmony Gold decreased 3 Rand to 64 Rand a share on the back of weaker gold spot prices and a stronger Rand. Sabanya Stillwater decreased 3 Rand to 68 Rand a share on the back of weaker precious metals prices. In the currency markets, the Rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 Rand 95 cents against the dollar, 20 Rand and 77 cents against the pound, and 17 Rand and 84 cents against the euro. Gold is down to $1,700 an ounce. Bitcoin is slightly in the red. One Bitcoin will put you back 835,000 Rand. And lastly, Brent crude is strongly up at a shade below $70 a barrel. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. That's all we've got time for here on the Biz News Power Hour. From me, Jackie Cameron, and sound engineer Dudu Maseko and the rest of the Biz News team, have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Monday on Fine Music Radio FM and DSTV Channel 838. You can also catch up on the interviews on the Biz News Power Hour podcast channel on Spotify. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.